Industry Association's research update. I am your guest host this month, Dr. Rosie Bush. August is an exciting time for many sheep producers in the U.S. Summer grazing projects are coming to a close. Some are preg scanning ewes in anticipation for fall lambing, while others are selecting rams for the spring lambing season. Late summer, early fall is also a time of concern for many sh shepherds as blue tongue season tends to peak as the weather cools. However, this has been quite an odd summer, I would have to say. So who knows what's going to happen? Um, blue tongue virus affects sheep everywhere on the planet. So to answer our questions, we've recruited one of the top experts on the subject, Dr. Christy Mayo, a DVM PhD who serves as the head of virology section at Colorado State University's Diagnostic Medicine Center and an early career DVM PhD, Dr. Molly Carpenter. Dr. Mayo and Dr. Carpenter, thank you so much for joining us and welcome. Thank All right. You. Yeah. Uh, so... I know your titles because I found that on the website, <laughs> but could you guys introduce yourselves a little bit and kind of tell us how you got to this point of, you know, providing such important scientific knowledge to the sheep industry and working with sheep? Heck yeah. So first of all, I just want to say that um, it's the sheep industry and the, the Colorado wool growers when I was starting off as a resident and a master's student here in Colorado that got me going um, into the field of blue tongue and research. And they supported me, um, everything from wool judging to um, kind of just the, the basics of managing sheep. So I have a huge respect for the sheep industry. Um, I was later able to go to California and be at UC Davis where I met the California wool growers and still the same amount of support and appreciation for, for what we're doing here. I'm back in Colorado uh, doing some good research and then training the next generation of scientists here with Dr. Carpenter. So I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Carpenter as we expand on Blue Tongue, but um, she's the most knowledgeable now. She's graduated. Hi, this is Molly here. And um, I started off as a practicing veterinarian in Illinois. Um, and I also served as a Peace Corps volunteer in Morocco, where there's a lot of um, small ruminants, um, such as sheep. Cool. And both of these experiences really sparked a further interest in infectious disease, uh, particularly diseases that are transmitted by insects. And so I pursued a veterinary microbiology residency and PhD program here at Colorado State University with Dr. Mayo as my mentor. And that's really how I became um, involved specifically in the field of blue tongue virus. And my research um, focuses on the evolution of blue tongue virus in the insect that transmits the virus, um, the, the tiny but mighty Culicoides biting midge. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. So such important information and so glad you guys are doing the work that you're doing. So just to get down to basics, to put us all on the same level playing field, can you tell us what causes blue tongue, the disease and how it's spread? Yeah. So um, blue tongue is caused by blue tongue virus. Um, and essentially this virus, it it's unique. It's pretty interesting. So much like flu, if you've heard about flu, it's segmented. So it's got lots of segments to it and 10 specifically. And the reason I bring that up is that, you know, as we get our flu vaccines and we know flu is changing and it evolves, which Molly Carpenter's working on right now, there's a lot of chances for what's called reassortment. So if two parental strains happen to infect 
uh, an animal or the insect at the same time, sometimes they can swap the genetic bits. Um, and so that what that means for us is it's hard to chase all the diversity that's going on out there. And much of us have lived through the SARS COVID-2 pandemic, we know how fast that virus, which was not segmented, but it was really evolving very quickly. Yeah. Um, so just in viral evolution, we know that this virus is complicated. Um, that being said too, the transmission is also complicated. So that Bush, thanks for bringing up like what causes this thing and how does it get from animal to animal? It's transmitted like the mighty little gnat or culicoides is the scientific name. Um, it's also called a midge. Um, sometimes in Scotland, it's called a punky. <laughs> oh, no way. <laughs> yeah, it's got a lot of names. Um, but essentially, it's a very small, small fly, fly, if you've ever seen it, smaller than a mosquito. And I think, what is it, the tenth of the size? Yeah, it's about a tenth the size of a mosquito. Um, for some context, I believe it's about the size of George Washington's nose on a quarter. Huh. <laughs> I, they were out in force early this summer, man. They get me good. We call them noceums where yes. we are, but yeah. Yes. Thank you for that, Dr. Bush, because that's the other name for them is noceums. And literally, because almost you can't see them except for they swarm. And so you, if you do see them, I think we've all experienced in the evening or the early morning, that's when they're out and about and wanting to have their you know kind of behavior uh, biting. But essentially, you've probably... <laughs> either been biking or walking and you just hit a huge swarm of them and you're like, Ooh. yes, so, <laughs> that's, um, and I think that's the, the insect that transmits it. Um, and the most interesting part to me, uh, out of curiosity for the longest time, if you see them, it can take only one bite to transmit this virus and they're so small. And so, um, when we think about the evolution and ecology, um, we're actually funded right now under the, a USDA grant for that, and we're still figuring it out. Um, so it's it's pretty complicated. And Dr. Carpenter's done a lot of great work in evolution on this stuff. And then another graduate student's really trying to explore ecology and how a changing environment or temperature is going to affect both the scale of transmission as well as the the movement patterns of these midges. So yeah, yeah. Well. I know you guys are very interested in the virus and we'll get more into it specifically, but why do we care about this virus in sheep specifically? What are the classical signs of disease that's caused by this virus? Yes, Dr. Carpenter, do you want to start? Oh, yeah. So essentially what the virus does, um, it's damaging the cells that line the blood vessels. And associated with this damage, the classical signs that we see in sheep include um, really high fevers, you know, 105, 107.5. I've seen um, a sheep with a fever of 108. Oh, wow. (laughs) You see something that high, it kind of, blue tongue is the first thing you think of for sure. Definitely. Oh, my goodness. And they have like a reluctance to move. Um, Some other signs you might see like edema or swelling um, of the face, uh, including like muzzle, eyelids, um, ears, and um, you can see some respiratory distress, um, congestion of the nasal cavities around the eyes, um, and also around the coronary bands um, by the hooves, um, there can be some congestion leading to some lameness and um, listlessness. 
Um, in some severe cases, there can be swelling of the tongue. Um, don't see that too often, and the tongue becomes uh, could become bluish, um, which is kind of how it got its name. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know. I've, I think I've maybe seen one sheep with a swollen blue tongue, but <laughs> yeah. mostly the lameness, the really high fevers, and then, you know, long-term effects. You can see things like abortions and diarrhea. I mean, just whole body effects, right? That can actually have long-term consequences for the sheep that are infected. Definitely. Um, One of the classic things that got me curious about blue tongue is the first case I ever saw actually in that lameness. You know, when you walk up to a bunch of sheep, typically they're going to, you know, move away from you and disperse in the pattern. And and these sheep are so lame, they they hurt so much they couldn't get up and, you know, just walk. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, the later sequelae can be quite sad and devastating with pulmonary edema and things like that. But um, yeah, it affects sheep quite significantly. And that's why we really care about it for sure. Um, but coming to some of the longer term, you know, losses economic wise too, I mean, there's, there's a substantial loss to not only production, but the economics of this, you know, moving through a herd can be quite significant. Yeah. And seeing those like reductions in milk yield, weight gain, um, and you know that severe wool break that can happen, yeah, with, um, abnormalities in the wool and um, temporary infertility. Yeah, yeah, those are all huge. Do we have a number for like the economic impact for this disease in the U.S.? I wonder. I imagine we have it in other places in the world, but it fluctuates but i've seen like you know globally i've seen numbers up to like three billion us dollars worldwide annually mm -hmm. yeah and that's a, a you know often out there in the literature it's hard to really estimate or guesstimate the exact economic consequence right. um but you can imagine too that we have uh these losses production and then also trade and one of the most significant outbreaks that most people might have heard about was in 2006, the European outbreak started in the Netherlands. And I happened to be starting my research career around that time. And, you know, just it was a this virus was not only affecting naive sheep populations, but also uh, cattle. And, it, you know, in Europe, it's become a really big deal. That particular stereotype was Bluetongue virus 8. And... As we talk about, you know, the virus and its diversity, we also have to bring up serotype, yeah. <laughs> um, something we can't ignore. And, you know, in our papers, we, we kind of count upwards of greater than 29 serotypes at this point that are characterized, um, you know, and, and we can get more into the weeds of that, of that in a bit, but um, it's just, it's a complicated virus to get ahead of and also understand, um, mm -hmm. yeah. I, so I imagine with the types of losses you mentioned that it, this disease may go undiagnosed or unrecognized if it looks, you know, if I see a bunch of lame sheep, I might think foot rot. Or if I see a bunch of abortions, I might think, you know, chlamydia or campylobacter vibrio. So are, are there other diseases that might mimic some of the signs that we're seeing with blue tongue? And maybe we should think blue tongue as well. And why is it important to actually have these things diagnosed. Yeah, so, you know, you know, in the United States, there are other diseases that might look similar to BTV, especially with that breadth of clinical signs that BTV has. Um, and these include um, other endemic diseases, 
um, you know, such as bovine viral diarrhea virus. Um, and then there is also um, epizootic hemorrhagic disease virus um, that we typically see in deer um, that is very closely related to blue tongue virus. Um, and, you know, in deer, we also worry about uh, cervid adenovirus um, looking similar. Um, it's also um, important to keep in mind cache valley virus because that can also cause some um, reproductive failure and congenital lesions um, that might look similar to blue tongue virus. Um, also, uh, you know, some non-infectious causes um, I've seen mentioned in the literature, um, you know, photosensitization can sometimes appear similar. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and we, you know, depending on what they're grazing, maybe they're grazing toxic plants that give them that kind of facial edema. Yeah, there's so many things. But I think with the work that you guys do, it seems like it would be really important to know if we're starting to see blue tongue maybe off season or, you know, because we typically think of blue tongue as being, you know, late summer, early fall. But with all this, these odd weather changes, I think, I guess, how important is it to know that our seasonality is changing or how does that impact the, you know, typical season of blue tongue? Oh, and this could be a whole <laughs> podcast on itself. <laughs> um, it, it's having a pretty significant impact, I think, for all vector-borne diseases and especially as we think about blue tongue um, and to go back to kind of some of the the origins of how I like to think about it in the ecology is we have to understand the midge, you know, and, and the Kilicoides environment. Where do they like to lay their eggs? Where do the reproductive cycles go? What we're still one, you know, curious about what attracts them, what allows their, their biting rates to either increase or decrease. But mm -hmm. essentially, kind of coming back to it, the the environment where or habitat, let's put it that way, that Chilicoides really love is kind of these moist environments with organic material. So when we think about that with uh, kind of silty soil, um, and I want to put this in contrast to a mosquito's habitat, right? So everybody, I know when I was in California, don't leave stagnant water um, and just open water sources, try to, to mitigate that. And that's where a mosquito would lay their eggs. The difference would be a Kilicoides likes this kind of, and I work around a lot of dairy lagoons, if you've ever heard of that. It's kind of a place where um, a lot of organic material goes to kind of sit for a bit. And that moist soil between the water interfaces, the perfect habitat for a Kilicoides to lay its eggs. So that being said, um, do I think a changing climate is going to offer variability in how we're going to see both biting rates, disease presentation, um, viral presentation. Yeah, I think we're going to see northern expansion as we've seen. Um, mm -hmm. I think we're still at a place where we're still identifying novel Culicoides species that might be competent. So we identified that in the European outbreak that I mentioned a bit ago. Not only was the virus moving north, <laughs> um, but we also found that there was a more competent species that we've not identified before. So here in you know North America, we think of Culicoides sonorensis. That's like the classic species, but it's not lost on us that there are many species in the Southeast and novel serotypes being introduced that might be changing that paradigm. And so with a, you know, 
I'll just use West Nile virus that we've probably all heard about as an example this year in Colorado. We, unlike maybe other places, we've actually had a lot of precipitation, a lot of wet, you know, uh, moisture. And I was just talking to a few West Nile virus experts. What's happening right now, we probably think that's creating great environments and great habitats for mosquitoes, mm -hmm. which as an example, we've had, as a diagnostic lab for veterinary medicine, we've had a lot of horses that are positive. Um, and here in Larimer County, I think the last estimate that I had was 36 human cases. Wow. So that's a lot. And that's just an example of what I think we're going to start seeing if we watch habitat for Chilocoides and Bluton as things that are going to start to change um, with these sometimes you know, we keep hearing the hottest summer on record. Um, we're still trying to understand the environmental drivers of Culicoides behavior. And and I'm going to pitch it over to Molly here in a second. Most of her work has been understanding temperature dynamics of the virus within the Culicoides, the midge itself. And we, we're, we're still trying to grasp what we don't know yeah. <laughs> on, yeah. on how that virus interacts. Yeah, I don't know if this will set you up or throw you off, but <laughs> I've definitely the gosh, two summers ago, it was one of our drought years and we had more blue tongue cases then. And it was kind of counterintuitive in a drought year that you would have more blue tongue, but it seems because it their behavior is a little more intensified, maybe, or I don't know if that helps if you can explain that or if that we're still learning about that or how climate changes affects their behaviors or it doesn't throw us off at all in fact we think <laughs> about it all the time in the lab um we're laughing over here because uh you know it's not a laughable matter i mean i think that we we're doing a lot of basic ecology studies in fact one of our grad students out of notre dame um she's been looking at habitat you know and i'll Put a plug out there for an amazing entomologist, Dr. Emily McDermott. Um, but we're working in collaboration to really understand habitat and density um, mm -hmm. and what might be about a drought year, because there's no doubt that sometimes we see an increased infection um, in a drought year. Several hypotheses are out there. I don't know if we've demonstrated anyone is is totally <laughs> accurate. Mm -hmm. um, some people have said, well, you know, maybe drought years it congregates animals to intensified water sources, um, which might be the water sources that would allow for the habitat for Chilocoides. But um, it, it, it's not lost on us that the temperature, the, sorry, temperature dynamics we've put both the midge and the virus through, at least with Molly's controlled work in the lab, mm -hmm. it has thrown us in, into a, a loop, but please yeah, go on. <laughs> definitely. So um, when the midge, the um, culicoides vector gets a infectious blood meal from uh, a sheep or a ruminant, there's a certain amount of time we call it the extrinsic um, incubation period where it takes a certain amount of time, usually we say about seven to 10 days for that midge to become infective for when they bite another sheep. And we're seeing with the warmer temperatures, that in extrinsic incubation period, that time gets shortened. And that definitely can um, alter transmission dynamics and um, potentially accelerate things. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, it's interesting because I know, you know, we think we talk about and we already have about how this virus is transmitted through an insect, but animal movement and animal concentration can definitely intensify that. And I think, you know, I think it threw me when I was a baby vet and was sending animals to Canada, like, why am I having to test for blue tongue if, you know, if gluten can't be transmitted up there, that's why they don't have it. But still, if I sent an animal that was viremic to Canada, that could be <laughs> case zero for Canada, because like you said, things are moving further north. And I think now, since I'm a baby vet or since I was a baby vet, they have I think they have had blue tongue in Canada. That shows you how long ago that was. But <laughs> mm-hmm. No, yeah. I, I gosh. Yeah. I mean, this is one of those things for Tim Lissick a long time ago. Um now, when I was a, a baby researcher, <laughs> um, it was one of those things where he was demonstrating that helicoides, they don't, you know, they don't have to see boundaries, right? They they will be moving. Um, and as warmer temperatures will accommodate them, both them and the virus, right? Um, I think we will be seeing migration of these these different diseases. All, you know, all vector-borne disease, I think, needs to have some attention-focused to climate change and maybe climate variability. Um, mm-hmm. As we've seen this year, for instance, you know, I think I just heard on the news San Diego with most rain ever in precipitation and the ramifications that are going to start to like kind of occur from these situations. So um, yeah, from baby researcher and beyond, <laughs> <laughs> I think testing, you know, it, and that's another thing just to keep in mind now that I'm a, a diagnostician, which I wasn't before, and I've been in this job almost nine years it sometimes is difficult and challenging to understand testing and and different you know trade boundaries and how you're sending animals where they're going and so I think we just have to pay attention to what the regulations are yeah um, yeah. at any given time (laughs) so you've mentioned a little bit about serotypes I'm curious why is it important to know the serotype, like which serotype causes infection in your animals if they're submitted? What do we know about those different serotypes in the U.S.? Are there certain regions that have more of one type versus another? Well, I will say classically, and then I'll let Molly take this over. Um, classically, we've had five serotypes that we've considered what's called endemic versus exotic. So if our, our listeners have heard that terminology. It has changed recently, according to the APHIS website. So I'd direct you there. Um, but the classic, as of like maybe two years ago, was endemic exotic. So the endemic ones that we considered were 2, 10, 11, 13, and 17. Um, and largely, the exotic ones we kind of considered down in the southeast in Florida, where there's a commingling of some of the South American and North American uh, isolates along with the culicoides vector range. So mm-hmm. that was the classic. More recently, if you go to the APHIS website now, there's actually now considered reported, and I always have to look at it because it's so new to me, uh, established, reported, and not reported. And so the criteria, we we won't go down into the rabbit hole today, but I'd, I'd really encourage for folks to look at those. Um, it's kind of if things have been established for two years in an area, um, that being said, that's the terminology. Yeah. <laughs> the reason we pay attention to serotypes is basically that's the, the confirmation of you know your immunological profile of what would it expose potentially would protect you again for the following year to that same serotype. We 
don't have definitive information that any of these serotypes could be cross protective. And what I mean by that, as an example, is say uh, a sheep got infected by a 10 one year, serotype mm -hmm. 10, and got infected by a serotype 17 the next year. We can't confirm that there would be any protection. Um, so that's kind of when we talk about serotypes, this is the reason we pay attention to them because of the immunological profile. I will share, and we have a manuscript currently in review, but we were Colorado and the surveillance efforts we've been doing. We've been reading the book for having the classic endemic serotypes for a long period of time. And it was actually the story of a grad student <laughs> exploring research interests and doing next generation sequencing. And so taking all our current diagnostics to the next level and looking at you know the genetic material of this virus she actually and i'm going to pass the ball here in a second but she actually identified a novel serotype in colorado blue tongue virus six it was the first time we'd ever seen it here at least but who had been looking right. um, and so this was a diseased animal but i'm going to pass the ball because the next part of the story is pretty interesting um and how we worked it up because we found it in subsequent years anyways yeah so it's it, you know it's kind of an interesting story about um diagnostics too with this with this virus so um there were some pretty sick sheep and um, the producer wanted it to be serotyped and what we traditionally do is run a panel of the endemic serotypes um so i ran a panel for two serotype 2 10 11 13 and 17 um and nothing came up and um, ran it again just to be sure um and nothing came up <laughs> and so um just kind of was a little upset about that but we um transitioned our diagnostic platform um we we uh, did some next generation sequencing um on it and from there we were able to determine that it was um a serotype new to colorado um serotype six and that might have also corresponded with um some of the disease that we were seeing in the sheep um skip a year later <laughs> and um and also these findings were confirmed um by the national veterinary um, services laboratory in ames iowa so working very closely with them um and then uh, about a year later there was a die-off of mule deer um and you know working closely with um colorado parks and wildlife um turned out that was all as well um blue tongue virus six serotype in those deer yeah wow. And I, I think too, you know, just we can circle to this as a topic, but I think it just brings up why surveillance and active surveillance um, is really important. And, and, and especially in our livestock, um, I think if we don't look, we won't know. And, and it's one of our themes or messages from the Mayo Lab. Um, and it stems from coming from UC Davis and the McLaughlin legacy in his lab. Um, doing active surveillance and making sure we're paying attention and seeing what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. And it, yeah, like you said, the different serotypes. Yeah. It's interesting how folks are asking for the serotype. And I think part of that is to know if there's a vaccine that might protect, because I think you guys have done a really good job to say, Hey, we don't know if these serotypes will cross protect. And so, you know, why would I buy a vaccine that isn't a similar serotype to what is affecting my sheep in my area. And, but then also the disease that they get from these different serotypes seems incredibly different depending on what they're affected with. So yeah, just knowing what's out there. And then if it's not on our established kind of 
traditional diagnostic tests that we should be looking for you know if it if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck maybe it's a duck it's just one we haven't identified <laughs> so and interestingly yeah. now six um stereotype six is on the established list <laughs> awesome that's good <laughs> well, and it, it's fun to watch so the the next molly graduate student so molly burton is our other graduate student that's up and coming and she's doing a lot of the surveillance activities ongoing right now and so you know, one of the things I think too that's often asked of of me is what genetic makeup makes a a more intense virus presentation mm -hmm. like disease-wise than than others. And to the best of my knowledge, I don't perceive that we have that answer yet. So mm -hmm. if I was to even do all this next gen sequencing that I it's kind of flashy right now, it it is really difficult to say that we would understand exactly what to predict. So, to, you know, I think what producers often want is, yeah, what will be the nastiest virus? And and we're still kind of, I'm humbled by the fact that I don't have that answer um, mm -hmm. for folks. Molly, mm -hmm. do you have it? <laughs> no, I, I don't. But I, I think it also um, demonstrates, um, the situation demonstrates the need for um, progressing our diagnostic platforms, like using next generation sequence, because then we can start interrogating um, more thoroughly the, the question of what are the genetics of the viruses that are circulating and what um, transmission um, dynamics are we going to expect with those and what um, pathologies might we um, expect with those kind of um, more thoroughly corresponding um, the genetics with um, what our producers are seeing out there and seeing if that can help us. Are there I'm trying to think of how to put this, but I mean, so let's say we get blue tongue diagnosed and are there, is there anything we can do? I know it's a viral infection, but with a lot of these downstream effects, is there anything we can do to kind of mitigate the severity of infection or try to reduce the spread of this disease or is there anything we can really do or we kind of I don't know what it, are there opportunities in the future or what where are we at right now with kind of trying to control the virus and yeah yeah so as, as you mentioned um there is no curative treatment for blue tongue virus on infected animals um mostly um the veterinarian will do um supportive care um to help to help the animal through um you know in terms of management practices um and mitigation and prevention um, we tend to look at um, prophylactic immunization as a potential co um, control measure against blue tongue um, in endemic uh, regions um, you know but in the u.s we only have a vaccine approved um, for national use um, that's a modified live um, vaccine against serotype 10. Um, you know, other other strategies would be to do um, vector or midge control um, or protection from vector or midges um, that may lower the the risk of exposure to BTV infection. But that alone, we haven't found to be able to prevent BTV epidemic, and it's more of like a mitigation measure. Right. 
Right. Like I've heard people say, graze them with cattle because the midges are go after the black hide more. But <laughs> I don't know. Like I wonder if they're just what, you know, myths and <laughs> trying to do anything you can to try to reduce impact. But Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think, yeah, you're so right, Dr. Bush, on like kind of where we are um, in terms of going from folklore to kind of what's practical and um actually i will just another little plug for carly barbera who's the graduate student out of notre dame i've mentioned several times but she's really looking at density versus diversity as an mm -hmm. as a question on what our vector surveillance looks like so she's set up a few uh, different summer programs along with the habitat work that i mentioned and looking at host vertebrate host diversity and how that affects our Kilicoides populations versus vertebrate host density. And mm -hmm. I think these are two very big questions that we have to kind of think about. Um, yeah. And I, I think we're just still in the exploring phase beyond, you know, anywhere of recommendations. And if anything, science is just, it's just that. Um, that's what I love about some of these, uh, I guess, funding agencies that have really helped us motivate kind of both the surveillance and the vector work and really combining a huge story, right? So you mm -hmm. have the invertebrate story, the vertebrate story, and then you've got the viruses story. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, since 2006, I've just been really kind of working hard at all these different stories. And I don't have many answers beyond, <laughs> you know, sometimes mitigate dawn and dusk behavior, right? Like that's yeah. when the culiquities are going to be out and about the most or any vector for sure. Um, but that, it's not very practical for producers when you're suggesting herd all your your sheep or herd all your cattle at particular times. Um, you know, and that's kind of why we also went after this density study. Like, you know, Kilicoides, their very best, we think, are, I mean, attracted to the CO2 that's emitted from any animal. Um, we have a few bits of work out there. Dr. Emily McDermott, again, I can't help but uh, just really highlight her work as a collaborator. But she's done some amazing work really understanding where blue tongue might congregate in a midge. And sometimes we're finding that the ocular cues might be, once they're infected with blue tongue, might be skewed. And so that they might be drawn as they are infected to more CO2. And so, I know I kind of went into a rabbit hole there, but it's it's a curious finding and it needs follow-up for sure. Yeah. But her her work was phenomenal. Um, and I can't remember when it was published, but um yeah. Anyways, Dr. Emily McDermott, she's also from California. She was at Riverside <laughs> under Alec, Dr. Alec Geary, who's also yeah. amazing. Well, mm -hmm. and it is interesting because we do talk about times to move herds between one site to another and how that changes their, you know, trying to introduce timing to affect their grazing behavior. So they, you know, because timing and plant populations and all of that, it really does impact their health. And so we, you know, a lot of those things are strategically done. And so if we have information like that, I do imagine some of these herds that are more nomadic could use that information, especially in these high risk periods to try to mitigate that risk. And I think that is so cool that you guys are doing that work. It's really neat, exciting. <laughs> it's the students. I mean, honestly, they, you know, uh, Carly, reached out and said, I want to go do altitude next. Um, because here in Colorado, it's quite a thing, right? We yeah. drive it's more temperature-based, but we'll 
you know, drive our cattle up into certain higher altitude environments. Um, another set of sequelae that happened because of that. But essentially, she had that next question, and I, you know, I had to encourage her. That's your postdoc, not your PhD. Yeah, <laughs> but it does. <laughs> it does provide some stimulation to understand what kind of, as you're saying, nomadic behavior, kind of how we maybe could reduce risk, but we got to do the work to understand are the, are the culipoides there? Are they not there? When would be the right time and trade-off? And one last thing is just, we have Dr. Um, Alex Perkins is our modeler. So he takes all this data at Notre Dame that we're, we're getting on the ground. And, you know, some folks are a fan of modeling. Some folks are not a fan of modeling. Uh, I think it's a really important tool once we have empirical data to plug in and test it. And so yeah. that's where um, it's been so much fun to work with Dr. Perkins. And, you know, we'll see what, what will come. Unfortunately, the modelers can't do their work until we're all done with the projects. <laughs> and he's already putting together beautiful models. But um, that's the predictive tools that we can help characterize the epidemiology, hopeful mitigation measures. Um, right. And, you know, he can actually put in some mitigation measures that we're, we could propose. And again, it, what I love is the models drive the research, the research drive the models. And if we're using yeah. them together, wow, that's cool. Yeah. They just finesse, like fine tune each other. And I, yep. I think models, especially in this work are so important because there is only so much you can do in such a controlled environment, right? Like the work that Molly's doing and it just, it's so critical to have that information that then feed into your modeling, but we can't control Colorado state, you know, like we can't say, okay, midges, you go there, but not there. And <laughs> so yeah. having the you know ability to try to predict, and then, like you said, epidemiology work to help test those predictions and then improve those models. I think it's incredible. And, you know, that's the way we have to go. It seems with a lot of this virology work and, yeah, well, you know, a theme that's been passed down since I did my graduate work at, in California was also balancing not only the models with empirical data, but um, the field and the laboratory components, as you've brought and highlighted. You know, it's it's so critical that Molly does all the work she's doing in the laboratory, mm -hmm. but we also have to look in real time to Carly and what she's doing and Molly yeah. Burton. And I know I'm just saying all these names, but they're just these amazing humans that are grasping onto these these questions and these projects and taking it to the next level and so like it, it's fun to watch the lab in real time <laughs> as someone comes back from the field and is passing off the data to all these data mm -hmm. to the laboratory individuals and I you know I get to be like kind of the orchestra yeah <laughs> background so I don't know if they witness it themselves but in lab meeting it's just it's beautiful to watch. Yeah, cool. yeah. it's it's so it's cool. really really fascinating. Like I'll take what I'm doing in the lab. I'll meet with our modelers. They'll you know we'll talk about my data, and then they're connected with our awesome surveillance team like Carly and uh, Molly Burton, and then we all kind of get together. Like he'll put in for a model. We'll see is that what we're seeing reflected in the field, and kind of um, you know evolve and make new hypotheses from there. Yeah, that's so cool. That's amazing. Very fortunate for you to have that kind of team. That's amazing. Um, I will say teamwork is dream work. No matter if you're, I mean, I'm a shout out to the wool growers all across mm -hmm. the lands. Um, they've taught me that from an early stage. And 
it it takes a village, you know, to kind of commit all these all diseases. But vector-borne diseases are they're complicated, and yeah. I do have to say we have a, an amazing family out here of vector-borne enthusiasts at Colorado State. Um, so I have to acknowledge that I'm surrounded by an even bigger family. Most of them study mosquitoes, but yeah, we're we're migrating a few to Kilaquides. <laughs> Bring them in. Yes, and I think the whole the whole situation really demonstrates the power of collaboration between the producers that are um, allowing us to do the surveillance, that are giving us diagnostic samples, that are curious about the serotype, wanting us to investigate more, um, and they're collaborating veterinarians, um, the researchers, the government agencies. Um, and, you know, like, and then even with the wildlife component, with the Colorado Parks and Wildlife, just all kind of working together um, to put together a story and see if we can find solutions to these challenges. Yeah, there's no doubt the stakeholders are driving us yeah. to, like, definitely, definitely. <laughs> every time we head out to a 4-H <laughs> event, uh, just the, the, you know, the enthusiasts from early to the folks that are, you know, running production operations, like you said, it, it's impressive that they, they're not only letting us do the work mm -hmm. on their property, but they're also enthusiastic. Mm -hmm. it's yeah, so cool. they want to learn. They want to, yeah, they're just sponges drawing it all up. Yeah, but yeah. there's nothing like a group of 4-H or FFA kids. Oh, like wonderful. Yes. The Absolutely. questions they ask, you're like, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Teaching is a very humbling thing and it only makes us better. That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think we would be remiss if we didn't mention some of the um, controversy or challenges around vaccines for blue tongue. Um, I only say that because, you know, it is one of the things that I know our stakeholders are really interested in, or I get a lot of questions. Why don't we have a vaccine for blue tongue? And uh, you know, one of my my neighbor for my office next door, he works on infectious coryza with poultry, which is a related virus. And just the chance, you know, they make a new vaccine every year because the virus evolves so quickly. And that's, you know, a very different industry, a lot of animals and how I just curious your thoughts on, you know, with your extreme knowledge and the evolution potential of this virus and kind of what we need to think about with vaccines for blue tongue and maybe some of the challenges or opportunities that we might have with vaccines. Yeah, I'll start it off and then let Dr. Carpenter take a bit more. But I think one of the challenges, so she's already brought up that we do have um, one licensed vaccine and in North America, and it's um, for a particular serotype, serotype 10. It's a modified live vaccine, and just to kind of put the bookends of vaccines in perspective, there's things called killed vaccines and modified live vaccines. Um, killed vaccines are a bit safer, but they require to come in and boost again mm -hmm. and again and again. Right. Um, modified live might allow for more robust protection from the, the initial, you know, injection. The controversy in some ways with blue tongue is the ability of this virus to potentially reassort both in the vertebrate or invertebrate um, if given as a modified live. So that's one, one set point. Why is that important? I think it comes back to the genetic discussions we've had. We still don't know the drivers of what genetic 
And I think you said it best, genetic diversity, what we don't have that answer of what drives the pathology yet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, we know a lot of little parts about each segment. We're learning actually. <laughs> There's <laughs> different proteins that just I think this year uh, we found a new protein for for what a particular segment's um, operating on. But nevertheless, that's the one take home is modified live vaccines. We just don't want to generate more novel reassortance. Mm -hmm. The second driver is and controversial topic probably is the, the serotype situation. Right. So if we're going to develop a vaccine, how many vaccines can you develop? Because we don't, to the best of my knowledge to this day, we don't have a pan, like one vaccine that would help protect against all. And that's, we checked the APHIS website just to make sure we were giving very accurate information today. Um, but this is coming back to that word, we lack cross protection. So then how many vaccines does the producer have to give? Right. Um, and that's also controversial. And so all that being said, I think too, is what is the, the motivation? I think we all have to ask ourselves that. Um, I know that we're all enthusiasts here today and anybody listening um, to want to support preventing gluten, right? That's that's our initiative. But, you know, is everybody in North America have that as their primary agricultural advantage? Um, so this, the science and the research to go into developing some of these vaccines, I think we're just not maybe there. Um, I might be misspeaking, but that's just the best of my knowledge here today. Um, there are lots of vaccines, though, novel platforms. We've actually put out a review article a few years back uh, in, in Europe, where they had a really significant outbreak, as I've mentioned before, a lot of novel vaccine platforms were developed. Um, but again, is there enough market to kind of get that right position? So a foothold I'm gonna, here. Yeah, I want to pass the ball to Molly um, or Dr. Carpenter and see if you have anything to add. Yeah, I, I just yeah, I wanna, definitely want to re reiterate that we want to have a platform that's um, you know protective, reduces. Um, reassortment and some of those side effects, but it's also cost effective for yeah. our producers. We don't want a platform that it's not economically sustainable <laughs> yeah. for for our producers. And you know, with the challenges of you know 29 serotypes circulating worldwide, and we don't quite have a pan vaccine figured out yet. Um, but you know, really excited to see what scientific creativity there will be to help address address these questions. Um, you know, and another another thing that also we kind of think of as veterinarians um, is the concept of a DIVA vaccine, um, differentiating infected from vaccinated animals. You know, sometimes yeah. vaccinate, we might not be able to tell the difference between vaccination or infection. So mm -hmm. um, I think that's another up and coming um, platform people are, or um, challenge people are looking into is making sure we can distinguish that yeah, which would be important for trade and yeah, moving animals. <laughs> Very cool. And thanks for bringing that back, Dr. Bush. I think, you know, some trade restrictions require antibody testing versus uh, maybe PCR, which is more nucleic mm -hmm. acid testing um, versus potentially virus isolation testing. And so, you know, thank you for putting that into the practical context, because if we are generating you know, animals with lots of antibodies, is that a good or a bad thing for trade, you know, and, and right. what you have to do as a veterinarian 
to make sure you're getting animals to where their destination. So just many factors kind of influencing this decision. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, we have covered a lot today and it's just amazing. You guys have so much knowledge and it's so incredible. And I really thank you for sharing all of that with us. And I would just ask if there's one takeaway that you think producers should remember from this discussion, what would that be? I would say a changing climate is going to affect all vector-borne disease. Um, and and while I love blue tongue myself, <laughs> I've been associated with, with it for a long time. I think we're going to need to pay attention to a lot of vector-borne diseases um, and, and viral diseases. I mean, mm -hmm. the pandemic really demonstrated that. Yeah, yeah no kidding. So yeah. I think just encouraging us to pay attention um, and support each other. Yeah. Yeah, definitely, yeah. definitely along those lines, just want to express my my gratitude to the producers and um, them asking us questions um, and allowing us to do the surveillance that's needed so that we can do more research, um, do more surveillance. Um, and then also they've been kind of motivating us with their with their questions and challenges. Um, and passion for the industry with looking at new technologies um, in terms of diagnostics, such as sequencing, um, and just, you know, really have enjoyed and been rewarded by collaborating with them and look forward to um, what we can work together on next. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah, I've I've been so amazed and just, I don't know, I can't, I have the same exact sentiments. I think the people that we're so fortunate to work with in these industries are incredible and yeah, so grateful. So thank you to you two and for everything that you've shared with us today. I just think it's really helpful to really understand the complexity of this issue and how much work is going on and how exciting it is to get this continued work. Um, so thank you. And this to our listeners, this has been the American Sheep Industry Research Update. And hopefully we'll have your regular host, Jake Thorne, back next month. He's been doing some exciting things this August. So um, grateful to him and all that he's set up here. And eat lamb, wear wool, and we will see you next month. Thank you. Bye-bye.